privilege being back here. It's, a, it's progress because normally when I go back a second time to a congregation, it's to apologize. Um, so, so I've been invited back, so I'm very grateful. Uh, uh, and uh, yeah, I believe God wants to speak to us today. My wife Azalea is with me. Um, I believe that God has put us together so that we can minister to people, and without her, I, I wouldn't be able to do what I'm doing. She, she absolutely completes me and, and what I do, so I thank God for her, and, uh, and it's just by His grace and His mercy that we, that we are here ministering today. So let's look at that, that song quickly, because it's really such stunning words. It says, on the Mount of Crucifixion, fountains open deep and wide. Through the floodgates of God's mercy flowed a vast and gracious tide. And I want you to pay attention to that last part. Grace and love, like mighty rivers, poured incessant from above, and heaven's peace and perfect justice kissed a guilty world in love. That's some amazing words. I'd like us to let that sink in today. Grace and love, like mighty rivers, flowed incessant from above. I felt while we were worshiping, I'll get into the message now. I won't forget to preach. But I just felt while we were worshiping, God saying, got good news for you. I'm going to answer your request today. You've asked for it, so I'm going to give it to you. And you were asking that God will break down or break the grounds of your tradition. I promise you he's going to do that today. You asked that you, he, broke down, he break down your religious activity. He's going to do that for you today. And if you don't respond, you're a hypocrite because you asked for it. So you set yourself up by singing out loudly. Oh, the king is in the room. The king is in the room. And he's going to do exactly what you ask him to do. And you would have no other res or, or response than, I surrender. This is my surrender. I'm going to speak on the topic of grace today. And I just felt as I walked in, something jumped inside of me. Uh, and there I see the lady looking at me behind the guy leaning like that. In about the fourth row, that lady. As I walked in, I felt God stir something in, my, in me to say to you, His grace is sufficient for you. The king is in the room. The king is in the room. I also felt that for somebody here, you, you're battling with illness. You're battling with some disease or news that you received regarding your, your physical well-being. The king is in the room. The healer is in the room. June the 1st, that's a few days ago. I didn't celebrate it, but it was three years since I had a stroke. And I was paralyzed on my left side. I couldn't walk properly. I had to learn to crawl to walk again. And God has healed me. Yes, I've still got a bit of a limp. But you know what? It's far better than where I was. And that's the healing power of God. And that same king is in the room today. Also saying that the Savior is in the room. So I believe if the Savior is in the room, some saving is going to happen here today. 
And I want you to sit with that expectation in your heart. The king is in the room and something is about to happen. So let's go and read a scripture that actually, for me, de defines the grace of God. And often we would want to go, when we speak about the grace of God, we would be um, eager to go to Ephesians or to Galatians. But let's, let's go to Psalms. Is it up there? Psalm 85. And keep in mind, keep in mind what you just saying, grace and love like mighty rivers flowed incessant from above. And Psalm 85 says this, Lord, you were favorable to your land. You restore the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin. I want you to, to read this through the eyes of grace. Understanding the grace of God. You withdrew all your wrath. And, and there, there we could say, thank you, God. You withdrew all your wrath. You turned from your hot anger. Restore us again, O God, restore us again, O God of our salvation, and put away your indignation towards us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? And I firmly believe God's going to revive some people here today. You've come in with baggage. You've come in with hurts of the past. But you're going to leave without them. Because the king is in the room. Not because of any one of us. But because the king is in the room. Show us your steadfast love, O Lord. And grant us your salvation. Let me hear what God, what God the Lord will speak. For he will speak peace to his people, to his saints. But let them not turn back to their folly. And that's a warning I feel that God's giving us. Is he's giving us his grace. But we should not trample on his grace by going back to our folly. Back to our wrongdoing. Back to our the, the Hebrew word is stupidness. Uh, so I, I'm not sure what the English word is. <laughs> when, I, when I came here, I felt I had two words, and I'll pick it up later. Two words came to me, the, a warning that God's giving us as his people in this congregation. It's pride and works. He's warning us against that. And then last night, a deacon in our church in Sunningdale PM sent me a WhatsApp. He didn't know what I was talking about, uh, going to speak on, but he just sent me a WhatsApp. He says, he's getting two words, pride and foolishness. And it's exactly this that God is talking about, that we shouldn't go back to our own folly. It's almost as if God is saying, come on, don't be stupid now. Verse 9 says, surely... His salvation is near to those who fear him, the glory that the glory may dwell in our land. And now verse 10 and 11 is, is what I'm going to preach on, and that's that grace and love like mighty rivers. It says, steadfast love, or gracious love, some, some, some uh, translations say, and faithfulness meet, righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs up from the ground and righteousness looks down from the sky. 
Yes, the Lord will give what is good, and a land will heal its increase. A land will heal its increase. Righteousness will go before Him, and make His uh, make His footsteps away. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs up from the ground, and righteousness looks down from the sky. Grace and love like mighty rivers flows incessant from above. That's the very heart of God. That's the God that we serve. When we use the word grace, we should use it actually in terms of the God of grace and the grace of God. When we use the word grace, it is not just a something, an entity or, or, or something by itself. The word grace actually describes, it is the, the, the best word that we have that describes the very character of God. I know what we mean when we sing Amazing Grace. Um, that it, it, it makes that song go, go well. It makes it run off the tongue easy. But actually, you don't have to add any word to grace. Grace is grace. It's the, it's the greatest word that we can use to describe who our God is. By his very nature, he is gracious. And he wants to pour out his grace today on his people. His grace is on offer here. Grace refers to the fact that our God is a God who takes initiative. By, by him giving his grace, he took initiative for the lost condition that we were in. He's a God that intervenes. Because if God didn't intervene the way he did, by making his grace available to us, if he did not intervene, all of us would be without hope. But because of his grace, there's hope. So I'm, gonna, I'm just going to go through a couple of points because you could teach on this word grace for a couple of weeks and you will not exhaust it. It is so huge, it's so big. And unfortunately, I will not maybe touch on all the points that you know about grace. I'm sure there's some good preachers in this room and there's some good Bible students and you've studied this and, and you know much, maybe much more about grace. But I can only say what the Holy Spirit leads me to say. And God wants to deal very specifically with different people. So I might not touch your pet topic today or the pet point regarding grace. But trust me, it's what the Holy Spirit wants to touch today. So what is grace? Grace and mercy are the two things that we sing about, and, and the one explains the other. Mercy is the fact that God doesn't give us what we deserve. And sometimes we say, I don't deserve this. Life should be better. I don't deserve this. Yes, you're right. You don't deserve what you have. What we deserve is hell. That's all we deserve. But for the grace of God. Because of the grace of God, if we receive Jesus as Lord and Savior, hope comes. A living hope that will carry us through our difficult times. 
And often we say we, we don't deserve it. We should say, thank God he doesn't give us what we deserve. That's mercy. Grace is then what God gives of us that we don't deserve. Because God gives us things that we do not deserve. And he pours out his grace on everyone. If you deserve it or not. If you are undeserving or ill-deserving. Meaning that even if you have done so wrong that what you deserve. If you're ill-deserving means you deserve punishment beyond what you can think of. Because of what you've done. God pours out his grace on people like that as well. And that's the only reason I can be here today. Because I, I might have told you last time, when I got saved, I came off a heavy stint of drinking. When I, I was on the bottle, like, I, I really, it was, yeah. I got saved at the age of seven, so it was a milk bottle. Uh, <laughs> but you know what? Even a guy who was a drunkard, and me who came off a milk bottle, we both need the grace of God. Some he saved out of. And if you're in my position, he saved me from. And I'm as grateful for what he saved me from. Because I don't know if I could have handled what the world would throw at me. So I'm grateful to God for his grace. I'm grateful that he gave me something that I did not deserve. Grace is the very character of God. Grace is free. It's undeserving. It's unmerited. Grace is not something that was just created or conjured up in the New Testament. If you read in the Old Testament, in Genesis 6, verse 8, you find that Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Moses found grace. Grace is not just a New Testament thing. It's not just something we came up in the modern day church. God is a God of grace. Grace has got something about it that, that's the grace past tense, there's grace present tense, and there's grace future tense. And, and we should never speak about grace only as if we've received it in the past. There's something about grace in the past. There's something about grace that we need to access here and now. And grace will lead us on. We know the, the, the verse in, in the song Amazing Grace. Grace will be revealed. The glory of Jesus Christ will be revealed to us th through the grace of God. So when we speak about salvation then, often people speak about salvation as as something that happened in the past. Now, I got saved on that day. And yes, I can tell you, um, it was the, the 14th of June, 1971. So if you do your calculations, I'll be saved 52 years this year by the grace of God. Nothing that I've done, but by the grace of God. But we cannot speak, when we, when we understand grace in its fullness, we cannot speak about that moment of, I got saved in 1971 as just a once-off way in the distant past occasion. Because often people see that I got saved and now I've, I'm, I'm free to do anything I want to. I can live like a, like a moral pygmy. I can, I can live worse than the world out there because I've got the grace of God. Grace is not a license to sin. 
If that's how you live, if that's what you understand, that you get born again, and then you can live like you want to because of the grace of God, then all you took out was fire insurance. You just don't want to go to hell. That's why I accepted Jesus. But Jesus saves us because right from the start, he wanted a relationship with us. He wanted an intimate relationship with God. Uh, God wanted an intimate relationship with us. And that's why when we got lost in sin, he brought us back so that we are restored unto the Father so that we can have fellowship with Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. So, so you, you don't have the luxury. You know, when you buy a new car, nowadays we don't really buy new cars. Only the selected few buy new cars. The rest of us have to settle for whatever is, else is on the market. But when you buy a new car, you've got the luxury to decide, will it have leather seats? Will it have air conditioning? Will it have a sunroof? Will it have mags on it? Whatever the case may be. That's an added extra that you have the luxury to choose. In this case, once you're a child of God, you don't have the luxury to live like you want to. Because we're living for an audience of one. Our lives are open before God. He sees what we do. And we don't really want to be at a place where we abuse the grace of God. When we deliberately live in sin, we're abusing the grace of God. And it might not be good for your health. Let me put it that way. Don't play with that. But now, if that is grace, the second thing I'll have to ask is, so why the need for grace? Why do we need grace? If God just gives his grace, why did he, why did he start that? And this answer is very simple. Because of our sin. Because sin came into this world and destroyed the relationship between man and God. God had to bring his grace so that we can be restored back unto him we were lost in sin we were lost in the darkness and i want to read this scripture to you in matthew 4 verse 16 it says here in 4 verse 16 it says matthew 4 16 the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region of the shadow of death, on them the light has dawned. Now, okay, this scripture does not refer to ESCOM. This is just a, a, it was long before. But even before today's darkness, we were living in spiritual darkness. And the light had to come. And the light that came was Jesus. And that was the expression of the grace of God. Another verse that I'd like to read to you is Ephesians 2 verse 4 and 5. It says, But God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. And therefore, God, I understand why he is giving this warning that 
works should not infiltrate the process of salvation. It cannot. We cannot incorporate works because salvation is by grace alone. Titus 2 verse 11 says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Grace is not just an afterthought that God had. That's who he is. He's gracious in his very nature. And then lastly, John 1 verse 14 says, And the word became flesh, that's Jesus, and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Grace and love, like mighty rivers, flowed incessant from above. The reason why we need grace is because we cannot buy our own salvation. There's an old song, and I'm going to really give away my age. There's an old song, American song, that said, it would never, I would never have enough to buy one splinter of the cross that Jesus died on. Because he cannot buy salvation. It's a free gift from God. And then I just want to come to this quickly, where I felt the two barriers to receiving the grace. And the words God gave me, I said, was pride and works. And I got that prophetic word from Fred, one of our deacons, who said, pride and foolishness. And I feel that is, if there's people in this, pl- in this room today and you're battling with grace, with the grace of God, if you're battling with receiving or accessing the grace of God, then, then ne- we need to look at pride and works. James 4 verse 6 says this, God gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. God opposes the proud. So if, if you're battling, if it's like you're walking into a wall and you're not getting breakthrough, then maybe there's pride in your life. And God wants to break that down. The second thing, the second word that came through was that works. The moment we try and bring works into our salvation, we're contaminating the plan of God. We're touching the plan of God with unclean hands. Because there's no ways. Imagine imagine you're an artist and you, you paint the painting. And people are starting to say, you know, you should sell this thing on an auction. And then you put it on a on exhibit and you and people start they start the auction at 20 million and and the price is just climbing and then somebody comes out of the crowd and says you know what it is a beautiful painting but i think you should have done this year and they start painting and then maybe a big black cross through it that that should look good maybe we should just make it all black and then it will be better Now, if you think that's stupid or that's foolishness, that's what we do when we incorporate works into our walk with God, 
into our salvation. There's nothing that I can do. There's no religious activity. There's no religious uh, um, thing that I can do. There's no clothes that I can wear that makes me more holy. It's the holiness of God that's put onto me. It's the righteousness of God. There's no, there's no cloak. There's no scarf. There's no instrument that I can play that makes me more holy. It's me and God and the righteousness of Christ being put on me. So when you try and incorporate works, and I know people are well-meaning, but God is giving a warning here today that don't bring religious activity into your walk with God because that will contaminate the grace that God has for you. I know you feel like jumping up and running out, but don't. Let the grace of God work through in and through you right now. The barriers to grace is religious self-righteousness. Religious self-righteousness. Is that thing broken at the back? It's going very fast. <laughs> so now we know what grace is, hopefully. We know what the need, why we need grace because of our sin. We know what the barrier of grace is as a prophetic warning that God is giving this church. But let's just for a moment look at the cost of grace. Because when we understand that, we will not take for granted the grace of God. We will not abuse the grace of God. Like I said, grace is not a license to sin. You can't live like you want to and claim the grace of God. The cost of sin, the cost of grace is found in the conundrum that God sat with because of Romans 3 verse 23. It says this, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Remember I said the need for grace is sin and now God's word says, yes, everybody has sinned and falls short of the glory of God. But then in, 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 verse, in chapter 6, verse 23, it says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. So the conundrum is God says, yes, all have sinned. And he says that the wages of sin is death. So therefore, we all should die. Because we were born in sin. And God says, but he doesn't want us to die. Because in God's economy, in, in the way God's, God looks at things, in his righteousness, in his sovereign righteousness, God's justice demands that there's payment for sin. God's justice demands that. So, so what it actually says, and it's going to sound, maybe to one or two of you, it's going to sound a bit, mm, what, is he, what are you saying there? But just listen to this. Even God in all his sovereignty couldn't just wipe the slate clean. God couldn't just forgive sin. Because God's justice demands a payment for sin. So God's justice demanded, Romans 6.23 demands that, that God deals with us. And because his divine justice 
demanded payment for sin. God had to get to a place before he could forgive our sin to get somebody to pay for that sin. And that's where grace comes in. God's justice demands payment for sin, but God's divine grace is God's intervention. God's God taking responsibility for our situation. God's intervention. So, so now justice demands payment. Grace says God no longer demands that payment from us. It's justice demand payment. Grace says he doesn't demand it from us anymore. Because Jesus paid the price. Grace and love like mighty rivers flowed incessant from above. Ah, oh, man. So basically what it's saying is that the justice of God was placed on the Lamb of God. So that the righteousness of God can be placed on the child of God. That's the cost of grace. It cost God his son. It cost Jesus laying down his life as a ransom. A life, a, a ransom that will buy sinful man back and restore sinful man back to a holy God. And there was nobody else that could pay that price other than the perfect Lamb of God. That's the cost of grace to mankind. That out of the ivory palaces, into this world of go, woe, into this world of sin and darkness, only His great redeeming love could make my Savior go. It's a hymn from way back in the 1800s. But it's so true. That Jesus left heaven, came to this earth, laid down His life, so that there's a chance for you and me to get restored back to the Father. If I understand that, how can I abuse the grace of God? How can I? God's justice was satisfied when Jesus died on that cross. If you picture, we often sing it at Easter um, on a hill far away. On that hill rose a shadow of a cross. It says here, as we read in verse 10 of Psalm 85, faith, um, steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs up from the, earth, from the ground and righteousness looks down from the sky. In that moment, the grace of God, in that moment on the cross, as the cross arose from the earth with our, with our Lord and Savior being nailed to it. And the Father God looking down in that moment, the wrath of the Father was appeased. Grace just started flowing. His grace towards us. But I'm going to have to land it here. You'll have to come, or invite me back a third time. <laughs> Here's the thing. We sang, you know, I, I, I like paying attention to words. Grace and love 
like mighty rivers, dammed up in our lives. Is that the words? No. Flowed incessant from above. So grace should never be contained. It's something that needs to flow into you and through you. Now I'd like to read that scripture in Corinthians. Is it no Colossians? Colossians, is that the one that we have there? Yeah. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to you ought to answer each other. Can I challenge you with that today? Let your speech always be gracious. And before you nod your nod your head, before you agree, let me tell you what I mean. The word always as it appears there after speech, means always. Not when I feel like it. Not when I'm, um, I don't have to do it when, I, when, when I'm in a bad situation or when sin is tempting me. I do not have the optional extra luxury to choose when grace flows through my mouth. As grace has flowed to me, so grace needs to flow through me to my fellow brother and sister. But before you agree, before you agree, yeah, there's a catch. There's a catch. Because we might agree that our speech will be seasoned with grace towards somebody that is in this congregation. But it doesn't say, the scripture does not say, let your speech always be gracious to those who are in the same congregation. It doesn't even say that your speech need to be seasoned with grace to those who are saved. Is let your speech always. And how far can you take that? How far can you take that? We don't have to turn there. We don't have to turn there. I'm just going to finish it here. But if you think about Stephen in the book of Acts. Now you might not know the story. I'll just give you the briefing of it. Stephen was a deacon at this stage. And it starts his story with Stephen filled with grace and power. Now you say, no, no, no. It was filled with the Holy Spirit. That, one, that was when he was still a saint. So he started off with Holy Spirit. So please, don't wait till you deacon until you're filled with the Holy Spirit. That happens in sainthood. By the time he became a deacon, he was filled with grace and power. To the point when he was preaching, and he knew that that sermon is going to cost him his life. He starts preaching. He gives the best sermon ever. And people are picking up stones. They're picking up rocks. And they're not going to give him a fright. They're not going to throw it at his feet and just see if he's going to run. No, no, they're going to kill him. And in that moment, as they pick up the stones and they're ready to throw, his speech was seasoned with grace. And because of that, we have half of the New Testament. Why? Because the Bible says in Acts 6 or 7 that as they were casting the stones and killing Stephen, 
there was a young man standing who oversaw the killing of, of, of Stephen, and his name was Saul. And just before Stephen died, he said, Father, forgive them. Don't hold this against them. And because he spoke grace, Paul, Saul could get saved, and today we have half of the New Testament because of that man. So let your speech always be seasoned with grace. Even when you're facing death. Even concerning the person who wants to kill you. The guy who's behind your killing. The guy who's behind the slander of your name. The guy who's behind the killing, who's, assass who's planning the assassination of your character. Let your, let your speech be seasoned with grace. And here's just a bonus ball, number 24. <laughs> Stephen was so seasoned with grace that his life and in his death, he got a standing ovation from Jesus. Bible says in Acts 6 and 7, and when he died, he looked up. And he saw Jesus standing. Stephen died and lived in such a way, he got a standing ovation. He brought Jesus to his feet. You know that scripture says that when Jesus rose again, he ascended into heaven and he's seated at the right hand of the Father. From where he will come to fetch his bride. But in that moment, Jesus stood up and gave Stephen a standing ovation. So the question is, if I die today, if you die today, what will be said? How will Jesus respond? I think for some of you, you might go, ah, what are we going to do with this one? If you have to die today, will Jesus stand up and say, yes? Or, has or have you lived your life in such a manner that you're going to be disillusioned when you stand before God one day? Grace and love, like mighty rivers, flows incessant from above. We sang another hymn. There's a fountain filled with blood. Drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunge beneath the flood, lose all their guilty stains. That can be you today. So can I ask you, maybe as you were sitting here, you couldn't quite understand what I'm talking about, the grace of God, because the barriers, the pride and the works was in your way, so you haven't accessed the grace of God yet. What I mean by that is, you haven't accepted Jesus as Lord and Savior. You haven't come to the point that, and I want to make this clear, that just because you were raised in a Christian family, doesn't mean you're a Christian. At the moment, we're staying in a granny flat. I'm not a granny. Just because, just because 
your name is in the register of some other religious church doesn't mean your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. And the Bible says in, in, in Revelation that when there's be, there will be a day when the books will be opened. And I promise you when God looks for your name, He's not going to look in a church register. He's looking for His own handwriting. Can I ask you, is there, is there an entry in God's book that you've accepted Jesus as Lord and Savior? If not, We'd like to pray with you. We'd like to give you the opportunity to go from, from somebody who, was, who followed Jesus in religion to somebody who comes into God, into, into a relationship with God. Religion doesn't save. Knowing about God doesn't save. But being in a personal relationship with God, that makes a difference. So if there's anybody here, if you would like to receive Jesus as Lord and Savior, if you're saying to me, I don't have that. I thought, I thought I was a Christian. I thought, I thought that, I, that, I, that I'm on the right track, but I haven't got that that you're talking about. Then I'm not even going to ask people to close their eyes and whatever, because they're going to know later you got saved. So let them know now already. If that's you, if you want to accept Jesus as Lord and Savior, I'll tell you what I'm going to do so I don't, I don't embarrass you. I don't want to... Um, put pressure on you but once you've once you've put up your hand and acknowledge that you want to accept jesus as lord and savior we're just going to call you to the front and nothing funny is going to happen to you but we would like to lead you into a prayer so that you can act on what romans 9 romans 10 verse 9 says that you will confess jesus as lord with your mouth and you will believe in your heart that god has raised him from the dead you see, you might have put up your hand before and somebody prayed for you. Unfortunately, that doesn't count. Because God doesn't say he believes with somebody else's heart and confesses with somebody else's mouth. Unfortunately, we've gone through many things in churches where people just say, put up your hand, and then they declare you saved. I have no authority to declare you saved. All that I know is putting up your hand is an indication that you would like to make right with God. And you coming to the front doesn't save you yet. It's when you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that the Bible says you will be saved. And every day as the grace of God is revealed to you, you will be saved. And one day, the glory of God will be revealed to you in all its fullness. So if that's you.